Each year, the All-Ireland Senior Football Championship lights up every county in Ireland. And last year, it was Dublin's title. Since the GAA was founded in 1884, nearly 130 senior All-Ireland football titles have been won. Delight for everybody. But there is one title that's missing. Known as the All-Ireland Behind Barbed Wire, it was a football match played in 1916 on a pitch called Croke Park at a prisoner of war camp in Frangach, Wales. The teams that played in that final were Kerry and Loud. I'm Sarah MacDonald and my grandfather Tom Burke played in the 1916 All-Ireland Behind Barbed Wire. My granddad was one of those prisoners shipped off to Britain in the days after the 1916 Easter Rising. About 3,000 of them went in cattle boats. Tom, my granddad, ended up in the most famous of those 1916 prisons, Frangach in Wales. Today, almost 100 years later, I'm retracing his journey there. With me are two other relatives with connections to the All-Ireland Behind Barbed Wire. Oh, there you are, Kevin. Hello, how are you? How are you? Good to see you again. Hi. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Tom. Very pleased to meet you. Father Tom Looney is the grandnephew of Dick Fitzgerald the captain of the Kerry team who played in the 1916 match. And Kevin Stanley is the grandson of Joe Stanley, the man who recorded all the happenings in Frangoch, including the football matches. Today, Father Tom, Kevin and I are taking the ferry from Dublin to Holyhead and on to Frangoch, following in the footsteps of our relatives. Before this documentary, None of us had ever met. Fantastic. All right. we're well, yeah. well, we're all... It's a small world, isn't it? Frangook, here we come, you know. Yeah. But it's going to be pretty rough, I think. We're not on cattle ships, at least, like they were. Those poor men, uh, they went on very rough uh, steerage, you know, or, 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 very, very rough, uh, cramped conditions. I saw actually a mention of all the life belts went to the um, British soldiers and that the guys, some of them were in pens and in amongst the cattle. They were, that's right, but yeah. they, see, they didn't count. They were nobodies, no. really. You know, under colonies, under empires, ordinary people don't count. They don't know? count, no, no. no. Listen, should we hit the road? I think so, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. Okay. Wouldn't you wonder how they felt? You know, what, what was the rest of their life going to hold for them at that See, point? They did not know. They were left their homes, their wives, their sweethearts, their family, their children. A lot, a lot of them were older men, actually, do you know? And, yeah. And, and, and their lives, and then they, they weren't going to be guaranteed their job back if they had a job at all, do you know? Yeah. I mean, they shot more than the, than the seven signatories, didn't they? Yeah. There were 17, yeah. Yeah, so, so, you know, I suppose everybody wondered, where will I end up? You'd, you'd wonder, given the so-called animosity amongst the city folk, were they nearly glad to get out of it, even though it was a horrendous journey? Well, they can see for the city folk because their city had been uh, laid to ruin, a lot of buildings were destroyed, a lot of employment and jobs, a lot of civilians were killed, and a lot of children, sadly, were killed in the, in, in the rising, that yes. week of the rising, yeah. you know. They call it collateral fire, or they call it, you know, the innocent bystanders, God help them, you know. 
In the days following the 1916 Easter Rising, our three relatives, Joe Stanley, Dick Fitzgerald and my granddad Tom Burke, along with 3,000 other Irishmen, were arrested throughout Ireland. All were suspected of rising against British rule. They were brought to Richmond Barracks in Inchicore, Dublin. And from there, the British Army marched them to Dublin Port for imprisonment in the United Kingdom. A recording of volunteer John A. Flynn is one of the few testimonies remaining of that prisoner's march. We were lined up then and marched down uh, through the city, down along the quays to the North Wall. The, uh, there were a lot of women. There were two rows of soldiers on each side and uh, a lorry behind us with a, a machine gun mounted on it. And uh, we certainly weren't very popular on the way down to the boat. I say this much, that but for the soldiers, the two rows of uh, soldiers on either side, we might have fared very badly with some of the women of Dublin. They shouted to, to shoot the bastards. My mother, Maraid, is now in her 80s. She still remembers her dad, Tom Burke, telling a story about his departure from Dublin in 1916. When the volunteers were being marched from the docks in Dublin to the cattle boats, which were to take them to jail in England, my father, accompanied by his friend, found a sixpence in a waistcoat pocket and noticed a small boy, barefooted, running along beside them. They flipped the sixpence to the boy who caught it as they shouted, fags. The boy caught the sixpence and disappeared very quickly and they presumed their sixpence was gone. What was their astonishment? And this is the beautiful part of the story. As they were being marched up the gangplank onto the cattle boats, the little boy arrived back with woodbines and a box of matches. They say that one of the crossings, they had to zigzag um, for fear of torpedoes. That's correct, yeah. That, yeah. Which kind of is an amazing uh, thought, isn't it? Mm. They were bad enough, yeah. you know? I wonder were the cattle more important than the, <laughs> than the IRA prisoners? <laughs> well, business as usual anyway, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Well, the farmers had to sell their... Uh, animals, of course. Yeah. That business was very important as well. So it wouldn't have been the most comfortable disorder of all things, yeah. Of the 3,000 Irishmen shipped out of Dublin after the Easter Rising, about 1,800 of them ended up at a makeshift prison in Frongock, Wales. And from June to December 1916, the Frongock Prisoner of War Camp became home for our three relatives, Joe Stanley, Dick Fitzgerald and Tom Burke. While all were heavily involved in the GAA, each played a different role in the Rising. Kevin's grandfather, Joe Stanley, was a successful businessman. He was a printer, but he was also a bit of a journalist. He documented all the goings-on in Frongok, recording history as it was happening. In 1913, Joe published a newspaper called The Gaelic Press and a GAA journal called The Gaelic Athlete. Both publications were proudly Republican, featuring songs and music as well as GAA results from around the country. When 1916 came along, Kevin's granddad, Joe Stanley, was ideally placed to be the Republican media voice. 
During the Rising itself, he was with the GPO garrison in Dublin and under instructions from Porrick Pierce and James Connolly, he commandeered a small printing works in Dublin city centre where he printed Pierce's bulletins to the citizens of Dublin during Easter week. A sort of Twitter feed of the time. As our ferry departs Dublin port for Holyhead in Wales, Kevin, Joe Stanley's grandson, shows Father Tom and I some of the original material his grandfather recorded whilst in Frangach. So Tom, this is just a, a little book that I put together from, from original material we have from my grandfather's book. And these are sketches of, of Frangach and life in Frangach. Here's a guy called Jack Knives. I think he was the bane of, of, of the life of most of the prisoners. And these are uh, charcoal drawings which depict life in, in Frangach. Here you can see a, this one here, Tom, you can see a sentry. Uh, an all seeing, maybe all reaching sentry. The barbed wire. Yes, course, yeah. fo fo focal point. Yes, uh, here you have, uh, they're cleaning the floors and this is a dormitory. Oh yeah, I can see that. Well, I've read about the dormitories. I see the high mattress made of straw and the pillows are straw and I see to the pole alongside there. Do you yeah, know? It, it looks dingy enough. I didn't know the mattresses were straw. It kind of says it all. But, but I'd say the military discipline really helped them all get through it and, and particularly, I think, the sports did. The 1800 Irish prisoners in Frangach had been rounded up from all parts of Ireland. They arrived there in June 1916. They were held without charge and without trial. They were seen by many as terrorists, both in Britain and in Ireland. The detention was uncomfortable. The living quarters were rat-infested and the diet was poor. Frankfurt had been a, a prison camp, hadn't it, for the Germans? It was a Welsh distillery now disused, it had been a prisoner war centre for the Germans and many yeah. of the Germans actually died there of TB and some of them were still kept on there they were in a poor state of health and they were kept on when the Irish came right. So and they were warning them about you know, that the ventilation system was very poor oh, the health conditions, TB. health and safety wasn't out the window but they, I mean, after, they were only prisoners of war TB was rampant in those days probably as well it was you see, with the malnutrition then that came in because of the poor food and the poor diet on the camps as well. Yeah. Uh, I think we would be saying about that, that, that the meat came from either New Zealand and sometimes Australia. It was very substandard, sometimes putrid, and there's on account of the herring that they got for one Friday. It was a fish on Friday and 70% was rotten. You know, it's yeah. inedible, you know. For all the negatives, there was a begrudging affection for Frangok. It became known as the University of Revolution. It was there in the Welsh countryside that younger and older Irish rebels passed the time swapping stories and aspirations. In doing this, they forged a much stronger idea of revolution among themselves. With all the time on their hands, sport became extremely important. Some of the top GAA players in the country were now imprisoned in Frangok. Father Tom's granduncle Dick Fitzgerald from Killarney and my granddad, Tom Burke from Drogheda, were both leading inter-county players in Kerry and Louth and were heavily involved in all the GAA activities in Frangoch. Historian Dr Richard McElligot has traced the relationship between sport and the Irish volunteers in Frangoch. Um, a lot of GAA people, GAA members were caught up, I think, something like 57 
men from Kerry alone were in Frangok, most of them Gaelic footballers. So there's a huge uh, number of GA people in Frangok in these internment camps. And of course, while there, while in Frangok, to keep up morale, discipline, fitness, they chose to play Gaelic football. Obviously, they weren't allowed hurlies, weapons, sticks would have been weapons like that. So the authorities were against giving them hurlies. So they, they used soccer balls as footballs. And Dick Fitzgerald, of course, the first real superstar of the GA, one of the most high profile athletes in Ireland at this point he's in turn there, he begins to organise with Michael Collins and of course Collins first came to prominence within the London GA as well as the London IRB they both organise GA tournaments among the inmates um, they christen the main pitch in Frangok that we name a Croke Park and they organise a series of they break the inmates Gaelic or GA members who are inmates they break them into four teams they name them after the leaders in 1916 rebellions that have recently been executed and they basically play a league system about six games each and actually this, <clears throat> the team that wins were nicknamed the Leprechauns coached by Dick Fitzgerald and they're called the Leprechauns because of the small stature of the players involved and of course it's not just between inmates the games are there's actually inter-county games are organised the GA's second tournament after the All-Ireland was a thing called the Wolf Tone Tournament which took place in the spring of 1916 now Kerry and Loud had got to the final of that but because of the rising, obviously, the final didn't go ahead. But they decided, because there were so many loud and Kerry GA men and members of the team actually in Frangok, that they might as well play the final in Frangok itself. So Tom Burke, of course, is the loud captain. Dick Fitzgerald becomes the Kerry captain. So the Wolf Tone final of Frangok is played. Um, and, of course, it's, it's reported on by Joe Stanley. And it gets back and it's reported in the local press, in the Dundalk Democrat, in the Kerry Man, in the national press, and so on. And I guess... It's about keeping up fitness and morale, but I also think that their purpose and their intention with playing Gaelic football is it's a, it's a conscious decision to promote their Irishness and say, this is our nationality, this is our sport. In the run-up to 1916, the GAA was growing in popularity around Ireland. As a sporting institution, it was still in its infancy and the relationship between the GAA and Ireland's struggle for freedom was a complex one. For many, becoming a member was simply about playing sport, the national games of football and hurling. But for others, it was also about forging their Irish identity and nationalism. It's estimated that around 20% of those involved in the 1916 Rising were active GAA players. This is perhaps not so surprising, given these were fit, active young men who were not afraid of a fight, either on or off the pitch. The route my grandfather Tom Burke took to Frangok began in 1914, when he set up the Irish Volunteers branch in Drorda. But he was also a successful inter-county footballer in the run-up to 1916. Paddy Clark knew my grandfather. Paddy is a former Loud football manager and international rules coach. So first and foremost, he was a sportsman. I mean, his interest yeah. was in sports. It wasn't. I was interested in sport, athletics, hurling, football. That he was, he was everything. He did, he did it all. Playing career started uh, really in 1912. He came to province in 1912 when he captained the Loud Juniors at 18, believe it or not, and uh, uh, he also refereed his first 
uh, county final, a loud junior final, when he was only 21 and he was possibly the youngest person on the field. He was also captain of his club team at 18. So that was in 1912. And what position did he play when he was... Oh, he was a scorer. He was a a scorer, a goal scorer. In fact, he got three goals in his first two matches for Laird when goals were very hard to come by in those days when matches were often won two points to one and often uh, teams didn't score because scores were so hard to come by. Oh, he was a a dynamic forward, uh, scoring, goal-scoring forward. In total, um, he was 10 years with the county team. One team, one year he missed completely. Um, and in the 10 years, Laird played uh, 34 matches and he missed seven of them. Wow. Uh, the seven of them were, though, at his Majesty's... He was detained at his Majesty's pleasure. He missed the match in 1916 uh, when he was in Frank Gok. So I'd say, uh, safely say, he probably would have played in all the Laird matches, but for his extracurricular studies... <laughs> During the Rising, my grandfather was given a specific duty. He was to be part of operations in Ashburn, County Meath. Their job was to sabotage the local railway line and slow the reinforcements being sent from Athlone to Dublin. And so 22-year-old Tom Burke left home in Drawda in the early hours of Easter Monday morning 1916 and made his way to an arranged meeting point at nearby Kilmoon Cross. But things didn't go quite to plan, as my Uncle Tom explains. But my dad had walked out from Drogheda to Kilmoon Cross and he waited there to meet a cabin man whom he didn't know, but the cabin man was going to show him how to use a rifle, teach him how to use a rifle, uh, on the few miles up the road to Ashburn, simply because Drogheda was a garrison town. There were only two bridges across the river and there were sentries on both bridges, so getting a gun uh, was out of the question. The cavern man with the rifle never turned up and my grandfather was simply left at Kilmoon Cross. Aware that this was now a wartime scenario and unarmed, he hid in a barn for four days and nights until he finally returned to Drogheda, having missed all the action. He was arrested on, on his return by uh, DI, Detective Inspector Carberry, uh, and uh, that was the man who had um, regarded him always as one of the ringleaders of the uh, Republican movement in Drogheda, which he was. Uh, he was present as a 19-year-old, but a well-educated 19-year-old, uh, when the uh, Irish volunteers were formed at the Drum Cafe in Drogheda. And, of course, uh, there must have been a spy in the camp uh, so that they could report all the goings-on. That's the way the British work, divide and conquer. Back on board the ferry and nearing Hollyhead, Kevin Stanley shows Father Tom and I some more of his grandfather's papers. The sport didn't just happen in Frangach, Wales. Everything was organised by a games committee, which included the three men we're related to. Here we have uh, my grandfather Joe was secretary of the games committee. There was quite a wide variety of, of, of games played. Uh, here we have the uh, minutes of the inaugural meeting of the games committee, twenty uh, second of June, nineteen sixteen, and then it goes on to show the participants. Um, can I just ask you, is yeah. my grandfather mentioned on that um, games committee list yeah. by any chance? I think he is, he is somewhere, yeah. Tom Burke is there, yeah. 
Dick Fitzgerald yeah. is there. Uh, and uh, he's mentioned as members of a committee, isn't he? He is. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, three, the three are there: Joe Stanley, Dick Fitzgerald, and Tom Burke. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. also Sean Hales, yeah. Frank Soldish, Jay McGuire, T Burke, D Walsh, R Fitzgerald, P J Cahill, who's truly Kerry footballer, M Collins, J Giblin. And there's Stanley. Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. Just, M, uh, M. Collins would be Michael Collins. That's Michael Collins, yeah. That's it, yeah. Yes, so they're all yeah. there. That was the games comedy. This next one shows the variety of of, of games played. So if you want to look yeah, at and the, long then, jump, um, the high jump, the sprints, one of the football, the, and a, a lovely one called the kick father, the place kick, you know, yeah. the relay race, of course, and then general ones. And uh, there are a lot of names. Of some of them were famous. A lot of these had won All Ireland medals in uh, hurling and football. Um, but when they're all gathered in one spot, uh, of course, you'll see Michael Collins figuring here quite a bit and winning. He was a great athlete. He was a very fast runner. In fact, yeah. I think he ran the hundred yards and won it for eleven seconds flat. In fact, he said he ran it faster. But in Westminster, one of the MPs says that if, if a guy could run. A race at that speed, he must be well fed. Of course, which they weren't. The food <laughs> yeah. was absolutely a very poor quality diet entirely. But these guys had great spirit and great organisation skills. Kevin Stanley, Father Tom Looney, and I are about to disembark at Hollyhead, facing into a very different journey to what the men of 1916 faced. 100 years on. We know exactly where we're going. That's the shuddering of uh, the, ex- the exit ramp of the ferry. Yep. That's Terra Firma now. Hollyhead, mainland, mainland Wales. All 3,000 Irish volunteer prisoners were sent to various prisons around Britain. And it wasn't until early June 1916 that the first of the 1,800 Irish prisoners to be detained in Frangach began to arrive there. The recording of volunteer John A. Flynn from the late 1960s gives some sense of what the boat journey to Holyhead and the first few days in Britain were like for many of the Irish volunteer prisoners. We were put down to the hold of the boat, which hadn't been cleaned out. There was cattle manure, the cattle boat, of course, and we had to stand down in the hold of that boat all night while we crossed over to Holyhead. We were uh, issued with a tin of... corned beef, or as they called it then, bully beef, and uh, a biscuit. And uh, when we arrived at Holyhead, we were put on a train and uh, arrived in London the following morning. We arrived, I think, at uh, Wandsworth Common Station, and we were marched to uh, Wandsworth Prison. But what struck me as most extraordinary was the lack of demonstration by the citizens of London against us at the time. They just looked at, looked at us in a curious kind of way, but there was certainly no demonstration, anti-Irish demonstration at that time. But my most lasting impression was when uh, the gates of Wandsworth Prison closed behind me. I felt my heart sinking, and I was very upset, more upset than I was during the rebellion of Easter week. While my grandfather Tom Burke captained the loud team that played in the 1916 final known as the All-Ireland behind barbed wire. Dick Fitzgerald captained the opposing team, Kerry, in that final. Dick was, and still is, considered by many in the kingdom to be GAA royalty. In fact, 
Kerry's championship home stadium in Killarney, Fitzgerald Stadium, is named in his honour. His grandnephew through marriage, Father Tom, who's travelling with me to Frongoch, is now an expert on Dick Fitzgerald, both his life on and off the field of play. And I'm going to show you this medal, the first Imparton medal Dick ever won, 1901, Kerry County Championship. And that's a beautiful medal. That was the first of four which he won in the Kerry. That's the second one, 1912. He won two more in uh, 1913 and 14. Do you know? In the meantime, he'd won five All-Ireland medals, you know, playing for Kerry and captain in Kerry in 1913, 1914. There was always a kind of a thing about Dick. They always thought he was younger than he actually was. You know, it was a kind of a bit of mythology and legend because he was a great superstar of G. You know, they would all say they would say he was the first Gaelic superhero or superstar, and he was a very glamorous-looking fellow. Of course, you know, he, he was a very handsome-looking man. Uh, Vroch Lochlein is a very famous uh, song that we all learned going to school. Fáinne Gallan Lead, you know, the, 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 the dawn rising and a, a dawn rose when Dickine, you know, uh, took up uh, put on a pair of football boots because he really led by example. He, he was a superb centre half forward and he was an amazing man, really. You know, he wrote the very first ever instructional manual on how to play Gaelic football while he was still playing. He was captain. And then at that stage, he just joined the volunteers and a whole roller coaster really of a career. Dick Fitzgerald joined the Kerry Brigade of the Irish Volunteers in 1913, becoming an officer in the Killarney Corps. In the run up to Easter Week 1916, Dick and his comrades under the command of Austin Stack were making preparations for Roger Casement to land at Banner Beach with a cargo of arms from Germany. However, the whole episode ended in disaster. Casement arrived on Good Friday, earlier than expected, and failed to appear at the agreed meeting point. The local volunteers weren't expecting him so soon, and Casement was almost immediately captured. In the weeks that followed, many of the Kerry Brigade were also detained, including Dick Fitzgerald. Local Drawder historian Tom Riley has, through the papers of Joe Stanley, been piecing together what life was like in Frangoch for the Irish prisoners, something he now occasionally offers local lectures on. Once the Irish volunteers arrived in the prisoner of war camp in Frangoch, they were each assigned to different living quarters, or huts as they called them. This is hut number six. And this was Joe was moved from hut to hut. And as you can see, if you can see, Joe, J.M. Stanley was the hut leader. Naturally, Joe's going to be a leader. He's not just going to go and be an ordinary guy in a hut who's going to do nothing. And Collins was in the same hut, but Collins was a hut leader as well. So they got up at half five in the morning. So it was a long day. And they went to bed at lights out were a quarter to ten. So they had to do things to keep themselves occupied. This is a, an example of a letter they could write two letters home a week. But the censor would obviously take out bits that the camp censor, that they didn't want those back home to read, and vice versa, when letters came in, they were also censored as well. And how you would know is that it was opened by the censor. Again, these are just little uh, examples of what uh, was happening there. Now, this is, so they had a, an athletics meeting every now and again. Again, Joe kept all this stuff. Today, as you arrive into Frongoch, 
little remains of the internment camp. There is, however, a monument to mark the Irish volunteers' time here. We've arranged to meet local councillor Alwyn Jones, who now lives on the site of the old prisoner of war camp. None of the buildings remain, the huts are gone, the Croke Park field grazes sheep, and there's no barbed wire to be found. Uh, is the monument somewhere here as well? Yeah, well, it's only a I think it's just oh, there, there, it there yeah. And the oh, flowers have been laid as well, yes. Yeah. Well, that's great, uh, two bouquets. This is marvellous. Farmers. Yeah, and it is by the main road as well, so yeah. it is very much. So we can out and see the monument, yeah. This is the site. A school and Alwyn's house now occupied the site. Alwyn? Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, Kevin, my name is Kevin Stanley. Hi, Kevin. That's Sarah. Sarah. Hi there. Hi, Alwyn, thanks very much for coming Father. to meet us. Oh, it's all right, yeah. Yeah. no problem. <laughs> so this is a right old foggy morning, isn't it? It is, yes. Those <laughs> must have looked out on. Sorry? The prisoners must have looked out on many, many I, a one. I, I think they had some awful weather to begin with. Did they, yeah? The, the, the first, I think they were here from uh, when they came here in, Ju- in June. In June, yeah. The, yeah. The, weather, the weather was awful. What was it, yeah? Rainy, was it? Yes, because yeah. it was also complaining of the cold and, and the wet. They did during the yeah. summer, yes. <laughs> yes, but I think it improved as uh, time went on yeah. to, to the autumn. So this is the monument. Yes. Sam. Frankach vi Mila Oked Ernach Even on Shah Teresh Iremakna Kaska Balya Clear Milaked as a Shajuk Tashe as Ratanish Koma Agastas Bailed Dern Shay one thousand eight hundred Irish men were interned here after the Easter Dublin Easter Rite in Dublin 1916. Who actually put that there, the plaque? Kandra Nagelige from Liverpool. Oh, yes. It's, it's an yes. Irish language society? Yes. Nagelige, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. yes. It's interesting to see the flowers, aren't yeah. they? Um, there are two bouquets here. Can you read that, Tom? I, I can read yeah, that, yes. Yeah. There's one of the bouquets says, in memory of the volunteers of the Irish Citizen Army in Franco Camp 1916 from SIP2, uh, trade union. Oh, right. That's, uh, uh, from, that's our big uh, reunion. From, uh, in Ireland. Yeah, this is the People's College in Dublin. That's one of them, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the second one, in memory of volunteer Pather, Hipney, of the Dundalk volunteers, from Camp, Frankfurt, yeah. 1916, from the Hipney family. Our descendants were here, so we're here with Sarah, just I suppose tracing the footsteps and oh, what yes. the camp was, you know. Sarah's grandfather, Kevin's granddad, and my grandad's husband were oh, uh, guests of the King of England. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. yeah. So we're we're now crossing from the south camp to what was essentially the the playing field yeah. in the north camp. Sean O'Mahon says the pitch in front of was called Crow Park. There was a fine crop of footballers and hurlers among the prisoners and the games were physical, a means for the players to exercise, of course, and release tension. In fact, the games were so rough, one of the guards was heard to remark, if that's what they're like at play, they must be bloody awful in a fight. <laughs> that's what he said. The All-Ireland behind barbed wire was contested by the teams of Kerry and Louth, the top two in GAA football at that time. An intense rivalry had built up between the counties. Louth had won the 1912 All-Ireland, 
and Kerry had won the 1913 and 14 finals. The match was actually the final of the Wolf Tone Tournament, which was then the secondary tournament to the All-Ireland Championship. Because of the Easter Rising, the Wolf Tone final had been postponed. With many of the Louth and Kerry teams detained in Frongoch internment camp, the All-Ireland behind barbed wire wasn't simply a friendly or challenge match. It was much more than that. Can I just say, I mean, we're standing here, it's pelting rain, it's very windy, and I'm looking at land that has, it's, it's very bumpy, they're... To my mind, and I'm, I'm not a sports person, but it seems it would be very difficult to play anything, any no, game. No, no, I've played in way worse fields and right across the Shreve Luke and East Kerry. No, that's quite a good field, really, for sport, I tell you. Really? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And uh, it, it's, it's adequate in size, even. Now, the 15 aside, they play. We're very grateful to Kevin's granddad. He has the team listings, so he might like to give us the listings there yeah, in uh, manuscript form. So from, from Joe's manuscript, um, I'm, I'm able to read out the Loud team because we're from Loud and I, I've given the uh, Kerry team to Tom. So the Loud team lined out as follows. In goals, the number one, as they say, William Atkinson Dundalk. Right full-back, Sean Butterley, Hunterstown. Full-back, Tom Matthews, RD, vice-captain. Number four, JJ Lang, Hunterstown. Number five, right half-back, Art O'Neill, Dundalk. Centre-half-back, Nicholas Butterley, Hunterstown. Left half-back, number seven, James Jennings, Rangers, Dundalk. Middle of the field, we two men from Hunterstown. Thomas Kelly was number eight. James Kelly was number nine. Right half-forward was Dan Chute, Dundalk. Mickey Donnelly from Dundalk played on the 40. And Tom Burke, the captain from the Stars, Drogheda, was left half-forward at number 12. And that is Sarah's grandfather. Peter Clifford lined out top of the right from Dundalk. Pat Kerr played on the square, Dundalk and Owen McGough and Doc played top of the left. That's the Loud team and how it lined out in Frangoch on the day. Joe Stanley gave us the list of the Kerry team, but he didn't give us their places, but I know some of the places. I'll start with captain Dick Fitzgerald uh, of Killarney, Dr Croaks, and there were four other Croaks players with him on that team, Willie Horgan, uh, Mick Spillane, Michael John O'Sullivan and Pat O'Shea. And then you had the vice-captain, actually, was a great Paddy Cahill, a former Kerry player as well, a Tralee man, with fellow Tralee players Billy Mullins, who wrote his story afterwards, James Wall, Michael Doyle and Dan Healy, our goalkeeper. And then there were lads from other parts of the county, two great uh, Dinglemen, Michael Jay and James Moriarty. And then from our Fertu, Jay Burden. And then from Castle Island, Michael Knightley. And later TD and the player that day, Tommy McEllistrom, uh, the famous man from Bally McElligot. That was the Kerry team. Despite the copious amounts of information that Joe Stanley recorded while in Frangoch, his account of the All-Ireland behind barbed wire was very short on detail. What we do know is that attendance at the match was compulsory for all detainees in Frangoch. And so the 1,800-strong crowd cheered on from the sidelines. After a 40-minute match, 20 minutes a half, Kerry won by the proverbial point. As to whether the county rivalry between Kerry and Loud erupted on the pitch, we just never know. By the end of 1916, all the Irish men held in Frongoch were released. My own grandfather, Tom Burke, was one of the last to leave 
arriving home just a few days before Christmas. And they didn't return home to a hero's welcome. For most, they simply got on with their lives. As to what happened to the three men we followed in this story, Kevin's grandfather Joe Stanley, the printer to the Rising, returned home to Drogheda after his time in Frongoch and continued in the newspaper and printing business, giving a national voice to republicanism. Disenchanted by the Civil War conflict, Joe resigned from the IRA in 1922 and later moved to London to work as a sub-editor at the Daily Mail. He eventually returned home to Drogheda in the mid-1930s, setting up the Drogheda Argus and Advertiser newspapers before dying aged 60 in June 1950. After returning home from Frongoch, I met Father Tom in Killarney. We just opened the gate of the new cemetery here in just overlooking Killarney Town and the lakes and the reeks just at the background there. When his granduncle, Dick Fitzgerald, returned from Frongoch, his playing days were largely over, although he continued to play with the Kerry senior football team until 1918. He went on to serve on the Munster Council and was chairman of his local GAA club, Dr Crokes. He married Father Tom's grandaunt in the late 1920s, but he never fully recovered from her sudden death after just a year of marriage. Dick fell to his death off the roof of Killarney Courthouse in 1930, aged just 47. He's buried in his local cemetery in Killarney. So this is where in 1936 now uh, Dick Fitzgerald was laid to rest. It was in a massive, massive funeral. And so his monument is here. It's one of the largest monuments actually in the grounds. It's an amazing Celtic cross. You can see it there. It says, Hugadara Sail, it's on Sirsha, Kjol, Changa, Aslihi, Naheron. They gave their lives for the freedom, music, language, and games of our country. As for my own grandfather, Tom Burke, after his arrival home from Frongoch, he continued to play with the loud senior footballers until 1924, never missing a match unless he was detained at His Majesty's pleasure. He went on to become a leading referee of his time and refereed the 1928 All-Ireland Final, the first final where the Sam Maguire Cup was awarded to the winning team. He retained a lifelong interest in GAA and became chairman of the Loud County Board. In 1966, on the 50th anniversary of the 1916 Rising, my grandfather, Tom Burke, wrote a letter to his only daughter, Maraid, my mother. The letter explains what he'd gone through for his country, the Republic of Ireland. Within a year of writing that letter, he had died aged 73. The 7th of April, 1966. My dear Maraith, I got a twinge when Mummy told me of your writing to my good friend, Mr Mick Hilliard, read my part in the Easter Rising 1916 and after events. After the chat, I began to realise I had three children in whom I am very proud and that all going well, these shall likely see the centenary of the Rising in 2016. 
And when that day rolls along, how could any of my children claim a right in those ceremonies, not having anything to prove their claim? In all the circumstances, I hereby give you full authority to claim for me the three medals to which I am entitled. One, the Easter Rising. Two, Long Service 1914 to 1929 and three, the Jubilee. I personally started the Irish Volunteers in April 1914 in Drawda. God love my best girl, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs>